Hello and welcome to the Clipping Chains podcast from ClippingChains.com, where we are funding the adventurous life. This is your host, Chad Andrews, and hi, how are you? I'm doing okay. I'm working with this file for this project that somehow got way too big. And you know when you click on something and it just spins its wheel for like 30 seconds to do anything? And it just makes you want to like grab a pillow and scream into it like a lunatic and cry. And I don't know how this happened, but I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm hungry. I'm also, it's like 8 in the morning and I've been trying not to eat until like 10 or 11, like intermittent fasting, I guess. I'm kind of new to this. Or, or my version thereof, which i.e. an effective version where I just kind of eat when I want to and not first thing in the morning. So maybe I'm just like a little bit hungry and a little bit crazy and this file is dragging and I just want to kick a wall. Anyway, I want to welcome back to Clipping Chains, Becky Switzer, a Bozeman, Montana-based climber who delivered a great written interview about a year ago. So when I first met Becky, uh, it was the summer of 2020 and I was living out of a tiny A-frame camper with my wife and dog. We were passing through Bozeman and I kind of remembered somebody I'd seen on Instagram. I didn't really know her. I was like, maybe she could help me out with some local information. And that person was Becky Switzer. I kind of sent her a message. I asked if she'd be willing to meet for coffee. And much to my surprise, she was. And this was my first kind of pre-interview discussion where I kind of get to know somebody where I really wished I was recording. It was a lot of fun. We sat there in Bozeman in the morning sitting at a picnic table and talked about all kinds of stuff. And it was during this conversation that I actually resolved to eventually start a podcast. And over a year later... Here we are. So obviously it made a whole lot of sense to get Becky back on what is now, I guess, the show, the show, the podcast show. So in this conversation, we discussed the realities of growing mountain towns and how to build and maintain community in them. We tackled Becky's complicated past with sports and relationships and how she found solace in climbing, eventually gaining sponsorship. Kind of talk how she's worked through the world of sponsorship. Becky also walks us through her education background and challenging path in teaching, which eventually led to a career in outdoor retail. Along the lines of career, we also discussed the proliferation of online coaches in the climbing space and how to assess the quality, or perhaps lack thereof, of potential coaches. Finally, we take a potentially provocative take on the utility of vans. Ooh, that's a good one. Vans? Hmm. To get in touch with Becky, head on over to the show notes I put together on your podcast app or on the website. There you will find links to pertinent items from this discussion. Also, guys, if this project is something that is bringing value to your life, would you really consider sharing it with your friends, family, or other followers who might benefit? I know you have followers. I see them out there. I'd really, really appreciate that. Perhaps you are also wondering how else you can support this free resource. The best thing you can do right now is to simply subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. And for those that are slightly more motivated, I'd really appreciate it if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and there you can leave a rating and a review. And that really means so much to me, guys. Anyway, all this self-promotion is making me feel a little itchy, like I'm in a wool suit. So let's get to this fascinating conversation with Becky Switzer. Well, Becky, <laughs> Becky, welcome again to the show. We've been battling with audio all morning, but we are here. I think we're really, really doing it. I think we're doing it. It's working. It, it takes the cheapest technology to work the best. Technology. Thank goodness we had a pandemic. We have all these cool tools to talk to each other from all over the place. What a silver lining. Yeah. 
Anyway, tell us, let's talk about your summer again. I know we did this once, but hopefully this is the only thing we'll repeat. What have you been up to? What's been going on up in the, and you're from Bozeman, Montana, correct? Yeah, up here in Bozeman, Montana. Summer has been different than previous summers. Normally we expect like a week of super hot temperatures. And so for us up here, hot is like 90 degrees. I know it's different in St. George and different in the South, but Mm -hmm. this week uh, and the previous week, we have gotten a reprieve. And so it's been back in the seventies. It's felt beautiful, but for the majority of the summer, it's been really hot. Like I said, in the nineties and the smoke has just been blown in from California, from Washington, from Idaho. We've been getting everybody's smoke, even though our fire fire season hasn't been all that bad. It's just been everybody else. uh, Thanks to the jet stream kind of blowing their smoke over our direction. So it's been tricky to be motivated with heat and smoke. Uh, It's just felt gross outside. And that's kind of been regional because I know you get out to 10 sleep a lot. Is that kind of been there as well? Or is it just kind of Bozeman and North? Yeah, it's really dependent upon, again, how those winds are going. Ten Sleep has gotten a little bit of smoke. Sometimes it's been better down there than it is up here, even though it's, you know, a fairly short drive, only like four and a half hours south. But maybe, uh, you know, the jet stream kind of pulls everything a little bit farther north. So Bozeman, Butte, Montana, Missoula, we all seem to get a pretty good lungful of gross air quality, like in the 150s, 160s. I know Tahoe has been seeing some awful numbers, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's been difficult. <laughs> and was it this way last summer too for you guys? I mean, I know I was out traveling and that's how we connected and we can get into that shortly. But when I was traveling in late summer, kind of in that region and moving west to Washington, I mean, it kind of, it became oppressive pretty quickly. Yeah, normally in previous summers, it's been like on and off, kind of like a tap where you can turn it on, turn it off. And not at least in recent memory, has it been this long lasting and it's just day after day after day, which gets really old really fast when you're going on like multiple weeks of just this haze in the air. And it's kind of, it's kind of like a cloud cover, but it's not cloudy. It's just all smoke. Mm. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, you're, I guess, considered a longtime Bozeman local now. And that's, I was passing through on my, our greater uh, road trip last summer. We were on the road for a while and I connected with you because I guess knew you, I guess, sort of from social media. And I was like, this, this woman looks like she knows her stuff around the Bozeman area. She seems well-connected, very enthusiastic. So maybe give us a little backstory on how long you've been in town, kind of what brought you out there. And we've done an interview before. I want to point folks to the written interview you did on my site, which I thought was really great and a, and a cool departure from a lot of the normal stuff I do. So let's maybe dive a little bit into your backstory and kind of how you ended up in Bozeman and what brought you there. Yeah. Well, thanks for that compliment. Certainly. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> I moved to Bozeman in 2005. Um, I had moved around a lot after my undergrad, which took place on the East coast. And I was looking for like a permanent home or something I thought would be at least semi-permanent, you know, longer than a year, longer than two years. Sure. And I was halfway through a master's program and had a bunch of master's credits that I needed to take to a university to finish off 
a degree. And that sounds funny to say it that way, but uh, the master's program I was taking part in, you could transfer the credits to certain universities that would take them, and then you could finish a degree program. Montana State was one of those universities that would take at least the majority of my credits, and I could finish a master's program in science education. And I visited Bozeman, and it just struck me. Like, it was one of those places that kind of took your heart and just held onto it. And so I knew that Bozeman would potentially be a long-term home. And so I took all those master's credits, put them in Montana State, finished up my master's degree out here, and have just been here ever since. And even though 2005 seems like a long time ago, I'm not sure if that qualifies me to say I'm a local. Um, probably, certainly mm-hmm. not, but I've been here a decent amount of time. Get that 15-year sticker. Yeah. 16. Yep. <laughs> yep. Maybe I'll get a pin at your 20, <laughs> a plaque at your 30. Who knows? I got a blender for working in my old job for five years. So. Well, at least that's something you can use. <laughs> So I get why did why did Bozeman call out to you? I mean, what what were what was pulling at the heartstrings? Why this town? I mean, there's a lot of places in the West that people. I mean, I'm an East Coast transplant as well, and I think I saw a lot of the same things. But I'm just curious to hear it from you. What what was it that stood out to you on this town? Well, at that time, you have to realize that between 2005 and now, Bozeman has changed a lot, mm. and in 2005. Bozeman still probably could have been considered a very small town, um, easy to navigate both the landscape and the people and the social circles. We always joke that Bozeman really isn't a mecca for any one outdoor activity, but it's a great starting place to get like your weekend warrior status on. And it's a great launching place to get to world-class areas. So Our skiing is pretty awesome, but it's not, you know, Utah Mm, or some places in Colorado, though we do have super light powder. We get a lot of powder days and it's great. So it's a good place for skiing. Our rock climbing is not phenomenal. There's a lot of chossy limestone crags around. But Can you you name some of those for us for those that aren't as familiar with the town? What what do you got up there? Oh, totally. Your main areas? So. The typical places, just the local crags around here, you can go to Bozeman Pass, which is a limestone crag. We go to a small crag called Natural Bridge, which is about an hour and a half away. Um, there's a handful of other smaller sport crags. The The main attraction for climbing is really Gallatin Canyon, mm-hmm. which is which hosts some sport climbs, but it's really mainly known for pretty decent track climbing and is beautiful uh, and is a beautiful and it's spot. gorgeous yeah. it's right next to a river uh it has mostly solid rock um and that is kind of one of the saving graces around here for climbing mm-hmm. but when compared to other areas of the country you know we don't it's not rifle it's not ten sleep it's not the fins but we can get to those areas fairly easily from here and you can just kind of go down the list, whether it's mountain biking, you know, I think the fishing is pretty decent, even though I don't fish, but <laughs> we are a hub for like all of the activities and pretty darn decent in all of them, but just not world-class. Right. So that was the main thing that drew me to the area. 
And there's a lot of kind of Midwestern vibes where neighbors take care of each other. You know, we look after each other's houses. Um, not that that doesn't happen in other parts of the country, but that's what I was equating it to for my mm. childhood. Some of these like Midwestern type values, and there are a lot of Midwesterners out here. But the topography of the, you know, when compared to the Midwest is completely different in the West. Oh, yeah. um, so kind of all of those factors drew me to Bozeman. Yeah. And I, I associate you with some degree of community and I don't, you know, I'm not a local. I don't know how true this is just from the outside looking in, but you do seem that you want to cultivate a community and be part of a community. And I've seen that in a lot of uh, the companies you're associated with. And I was planning on getting to this later, but since we're here at the moment, I mean, speaking of community in Bozeman, how have you've alluded to the fact that it's changed a lot over the years what are you seeing these days that are very different from 2005 when you arrived? Yeah, I tr I've been trying to keep my ear to the ground pretty closely in the last couple years, especially when it comes to welcoming newer climbers, so mm -hmm. the climber community, climbing community here in Bozeman. When I came to Bozeman in 2005, I just kind of dabbled in climbing. You know, I had been climbing since 2000. So I can with confidence, you know, claim that I've been climbing for like over 20 years. Mm -hmm. However, that first 10 years, you know, like many folks was just on and off again. You know, you climbed outside, went with friends just to crag and have a good time and socialize. Um, but really since I'd say 2010 or 2011, the switch has turned to, for it, for climbing to become like more of a quote unquote, serious endeavor. You know, mm -hmm. we take ourselves very seriously. We do. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but recently, you know, seeing the influx of people and the growth in popularity in climbing, I've really wanted to make sure that folks in Bozeman have been feeling welcome. And, mm -hmm. But let me tell you, that is a super tricky task as a climber. Why? Well, if you take the average Joe, who's got a job, who needs to be at work, let's say at nine or 10 in the morning, training time to get into the gym, or even if you're not training and you're just casually climbing, it leaves you to very specific hours of the day, whether mm -hmm. it's super early in the morning or after work at night. You know, some folks have families, so they can't go after work. And I think the people who have been in town the longest and have been climbing the longest naturally kind of separate themselves out just due to life schedules. I tend to end up in the gym super early in the morning. I normally train alone. Um, I see the same rotation of people over and over again, but I know that there's more people joining the gym on a weekly basis that I don't have a lot of interaction with. And so the challenge is how do we help these people feel comfortable and feel welcome in the community? And I don't know if I have a super good answer for that, but I think as we come out of the pandemic or as things evolve and we learn to deal with COVID in our environments, you know, we can do things. Um, you know, I'd be willing to bet that, you know, outdoor gatherings and like potlucks come back. I think that would be a great way to kind of address how to welcome new folks. You know, we're just living in a weird time when you stack this pandemic thing on top of it, where if you and I are climbing partners, you know, we kind of don't want to go outside of that bubble sometimes, right. you know, whether it's a real threat or a perceived threat that we, um, 
you know, that we don't want to intermingle with people or whatnot. The challenge is real. Like, how do we get folks to be comfortable in a new place, in a new climbing community? Um, yeah, and I can relate. I mean, just to jump in, I mean, I, I'm that person on the other side of the coin. I moved to a new town. It's smaller, much smaller than the Denver metro area with gazillions of climbers and lots of, you know, you could kind of blend in and who cares if you're new, you're just one of many. But in a town like St. George where I now live, there's only so many local climbers. And so you're going to get known soon enough. And it it is hard to come into a new place like this and feel welcome. And for a lot of people who've been here for a long time, you kind of feel like you're this new blood and, you know, all eyes on you. And so But getting back to kind of the modern times here, there's been this big shift of Western towns getting more and more popular. A lot of people, just like all of us, wanted to be out here for for various reasons, outdoor sports, like you mentioned, whether it's climbing, skiing, kayaking, whatever. I mean, the West just kind of beckons. But that's changed a lot since 2005 or 2000 or whenever, the last 20, 30 years. And it's especially changed during the COVID pandemic as a lot of folks are reinventing themselves and finding new ways to be in smaller towns and get away from the cities. And so I guess, and I I feel like Bozeman's kind of ground zero for a lot of this. I feel like in the last year, this town has made the news more than many others. And I guess what's the good and bad? Like, what have you seen change on the ground out there in terms of folks coming? And, And would you give any words of recommendation, you know, from someone coming from, say, I don't know, broadly generalizing if we're going to pull from the headlines, like Los Angeles to Bozeman, like what do you think that the changes you've seen and what would you tell to folks coming from these places to feel, to not only feel welcome, but to be welcome based on their own actions? Yeah. Bozeman has been kind of the epicenter of growth. I did a little research before I knew we were going to talk here and Mm. came up with some pretty striking numbers. Well, it's striking to me. I don't know what folks listening are accustomed to, but in July of this year, the median home price in Bozeman was, they were going for 785,000. Wow. Thank you for pulling that up. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, you dive into the rabbit hole and you just keep pulling up these incredible statistics. Yeah. So our housing costs are 8% higher than the national average, which is which is impressive, but then it's also paired with super low wages, which are mm, below the right. national average. Um, so in Bozeman, we're facing the same thing that many communities are where there's a ton of jobs, but they don't pay very much. They don't pay like a living wage. And the rental market specifically uh, has been tricky because you know rental prices have skyrocketed, but the jobs aren't paying enough t- to support workers. And thus... Um, they can't find a rental house, you know, right. Luckily i I was able to score a house uh, a bunch of years ago. So I feel very blessed, I guess, in that regard to, to have a place to live that's mm-hmm. stable, that's sustainable for me. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as suggestions for folks coming to town, especially within the climbing community, Bozeman and Montana is unique because there used to be, and there still is a little bit of this ethic of uh, staying fairly tight-lipped about certain crags. Mm. And it is what it is. Like you can be angry about it, but it's not going to change anybody's mind. And you can browse, (laughs) (laughs) you can browse social media forums, you know, mountain project, for example, and you can see uh, examples of this when, 
folks are asking for information. And I think new folks just have to approach the scene a little bit differently. Believe it or not, it's really beneficial if you're new in places like Bozeman to get to know people, to Absolutely. reach out to, you know, if you're bouldering in the, in the gym or you find yourself at the crag, just introduce yourself and just be like, hey, I'm so-and-so, like, this is a sweet crag, you know, what's your favorite line that you like to climb? And I think cultivating community is the fastest and easiest way to getting all of these local secrets or the local beta. Hmm. Um, people yeah. will ask for, ask for tips and PDFs and stuff like this on mountain projects and on social media, like major social media forums. And that's a real standoffish thing for a lot of Montanans because, uh, you know, in Montana, we're watching what happens in Colorado and some of these larger major metropolitan areas. And a lot of folks don't want to see the popularity that has happened in those places kind of ooze over into Montana Craigs. And again, whether it's right, wrong, or otherwise, like that's irrelevant. It's just kind of how Montana has been the best way to enter the community is just with uh, a lot of grace and wanting to be friends and wanting to, you know, kind of come together over climbing. And um, so that would be my biggest tip to folks moving to town. No, that's, that's great. And I, I completely, yeah, I completely recognize that. And that was kind of my vibe passing through town. I could, I could tell that Bozeman and Montana in general, not that I didn't already know it, but I could feel that vibe in the air of, Hey, you know, there's stuff here, but it doesn't need to be on mountain project. Doesn't need to be on every um, photo on Instagram. And so that was exactly my logic was like, who do I know here? And I knew you sort of. And so we sat down, had coffee and all of a sudden you're giving me bait on places to go. And I had a great time and I'm from Western North Carolina and out there, they're not stupid like us. They don't publish a bunch of guidebooks and mm -hmm. they don't put it out in the world and they have amazing climbing and I'll probably get shot for even saying this, but if you go and talk to someone, if you go to a shop, meet some people, they will gladly, happily show you everything, but they don't make a point to make it easy. Like right. it, you don't get to just log on to a website and get everything. You actually have to sit down and do the work, like go shake the hands and kiss the babies, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, it, and a byproduct of doing that is that it builds community. So when you see that person that you asked for beta from, you see them a week or two later, you're like, Hey man, like that was awesome. And through those interactions, our community just grows and it grows stronger. Absolutely. And that's why almost a year later, well, more than a year later, we're sitting here doing this again. So yeah, I, yeah. I attest because we sat down to talk about climbing, but here we are talking about many other things. And, and so life goes. Exactly. No, that's great. Well, I, I skipped over it, but I actually want to acknowledge that fact that you are a climber, a very hard climber, by the way, you're not just some person in Bozeman who happens to climb you're you're you've got quite a lot of achievements is there anything you want to mention that maybe lately you've been psyched on or just stuff in the past that really meant a lot for you that you really because you're you're serious about climbing you take it seriously I can tell you train this is not something you just kind of do on the margins like this is intertwined in your life is that fair to say um it is a hundred percent accurate to say <laughs> <laughs> um 
Well, my story is not super different from many people's. You know, climbing has pulled me out of a lot of deep spots emotionally and psychologically, and has always been one of those mainstays in my life. Like I said, for twenty years, but definitely more specifically in the last ten or eleven. Mm. Um, and you know, when you do an activity, it can resonate with you or it cannot. And there's many activities like I tried motorcycle riding and like dirt bike riding that did not <laughs> really? resonate at all. <laughs> and so everybody listening can probably pick out those activities where you're like, yes, I'm totally psyched on that. Or no, I would never want to do that again in my life. And climbing has been that for me, you know, growing up, I was a team sport athlete. I did all of the team sports. Um, soccer put me through a bunch of years of college. And after that era ended, I was looking for something I could do either solo or with a group and climbing really just kind of filled that void. So I've always naturally been fairly competitive and Mm -hmm. whether it was through team sports or through kind of a more individual sport, like climbing, it seemed to fill that void of being athletic and training for something and having goals. Um, so I'm forever grateful that climbing came into my life, you know, like, again, my story is not unique at all. Um, I think climbing has been that for many folks. Well, and you mentioned the word void a few times and and you talked about this in the written interview. And again, I want to point folks to that if they haven't read it already, but you, you actually talked about a story with your competitive soccer background and why you kind of that ended. Do you want to maybe walk us through kind of what led to your climbing and what was going on in the, in the soccer world, which was your big kind of sport love for a while, right? Right. Yeah. So in soccer, I wanted to reach the highest level that I could. And at the time, uh, for women, the kind of the women's professional league was just sort of getting going I was in college at the time and I practiced a little bit with one of the teams that ended up being one of the women's professional teams in the early days. And I ended up at a division one school on the East coast. And, you know, to make a long story short, the team and the coach just didn't really resonate with me. And I ended up really letting that affect my mental state and it affected my client, my, not my climbing, my, my ability to play soccer Mm -hmm. because I was bummed on the team. I was bummed on the coach. I was bummed on my performance and it just all came to fruition in my ability to play soccer. And it, it might not sound like a big deal, but my position in soccer when I was playing was a goalkeeper. And so when you are sucking as a goalkeeper, it's fairly obvious. (laughs) Sorry to (laughs) laugh, but I get the joke. Yeah. There's no easy way to cover that up when you're not playing well as a goalkeeper. Right. And it just led to this incredible spiral. And I ended up riding the bench quite a lot. And I had never ridden the bench ever in Mm. my soccer career. And I couldn't pull myself out. And instead of continuing the misery, I finished the season because I didn't want to quit. I wasn't a quitter. Mm -hmm. So I dealt with 
playing horribly and riding the bench for the rest of the season. And then after the season was over, I said, you know what? I'm done with the sport. I'm walking away from it. And, you know, going back to that idea of a void, all of a sudden I found myself with a ton of free time. Because at the Division One level, soccer takes up all of your time. If you're not in school, if you're not eating, if you're not sleeping, you're playing soccer. Mm-hmm. So... I went to the outdoor center and thankfully the, my campus at the university I was going to had an outdoor center. And I was like, Hey, sign me up. I want to work here. I want to do everything. And eventually I was running the small climbing gym. I was leading trips, uh, both climbing, backpacking, inland, flatwater kayaking. And those people became my family. So it was all team sports up until that point where I just made this very abrupt and wonderful transition into just doing everything outside. Hmm. Yeah. And you didn't struggle with that. I mean, did it feel good? Like you just went from, or was there a lot of, was there some sort of transition where you're like, what am I doing in my life? I mean, cause I can imagine being, I haven't played division one sports, but I've always been into sports to a high degree. And I can imagine like if something happened and I couldn't climb tomorrow, I don't think I could just switch to another sport and be like, oh, cool. I'm good. I think I was so mentally exhausted Mm. from battling with soccer that my brain just needed a break. And you you were ready to move on. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like my poor mother, she'll probably listen to this, but I would call her just like crying from my dorm room and just being like, I don't know what to do about soccer. It, It was like having a breakup or having a death you know, happen to you where it's a big part of your life and you're letting it go. Mm. Um, and so I think I was just ready for a change and it was a being outside and running the climbing wall and participating in all these outdoor things was just a mental vacation and a, and a huge breath of fresh air, um, after dealing with the mental anguish of just like letting just dealing with this transition of dropping soccer and moving on with my life. Hmm. Yeah. And climbing ended up taking over from these other more diffuse kind of outdoor sports, correct? Like what was the transition there? Definitely. Climbing stuck with me through my time on the East coast. And then I moved West, like we talked about earlier to Mm -hmm. pursue this master's degree and, and what's the timeline there just to break in? I mean, this is just a couple of years later. Right. Yeah. Okay. So the kind of around, uh, you know, the early 2000s was when this was all going on. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to Bozeman in uh, 2005. Yep. So it was a very quick timeline of when I was in the East to when I moved West. Um, and when you move West, you know, obviously you can still go backpacking. You can still go kayaking, even though that changes quite a bit from mm-hmm. like coastal, beautiful, super long kayaks to more playboats in the West and right. gnarly rivers. And I knew uh, I didn't want to pursue that. And climbing had just hooked me from early on. Even when I was a child, we would search out climbing like indoor climbing gyms in certain random places around the Midwest. And I would take a lap up this random indoor climbing wall that we would find. Um, And so that was probably the inception of climbing 
And it just kind of stuck with me throughout, you know, my childhood years, even though soccer was mainly the focus. And then in college, after I dropped soccer completely, it was just kind of a return to uh, movement and return to loving the problem solving aspect of climbing. And Mm -hmm. I think those two components, that's what gets me the most about climbing is figuring out this puzzle uh, engaging your brain and your body and um, kind of the personal struggle that you have to overcome in order to do a boulder problem or to climb a route. And I'm super drawn to that style of uh, sport, I guess, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then again, climbing, I guess it's fair to say saved you. I mean, you mentioned in the written interview, you unfortunately went through a divorce after you got to Bozeman and you have this pretty powerful quote that I kind of highlighted in the article, it said, my failing personal life drove me into the gym in an almost fiend-like manner. Do you have any thoughts on that time and what was going on and how climbing kind of came back again in your life in a big way? Yeah. Well, it's super similar now that we're talking about it to the transition away from soccer. You know, you're, mm-hmm. the transition away from a relationship brings up a lot of those same emotions. It you know, you're losing something very important in your life and everybody's brain needs a break. You know, when you're dealing with a big issue at work or a big issue in a relationship, or you're dealing with, you know, maybe a family member is sick, you become so wrapped up in those emotions and, you know, dealing with people are dealing with situations and it's such a breath of fresh air to be able to step away from that, even though momentarily to step away from that and exercise your body, your brain is forced to think about something else because Mm -hmm. of this problem solving aspect of climbing. And so for my case, uh, when my marriage was falling apart, again, ended up with a lot of free time Mm -hmm. (laughs) and found myself in the gym. I could go in the gym, you know, either have my headphones in or just zone out, work on boulder problems, take a mental break from trying to figure out what the next step was with this relationship or, you know, cause you're constantly evaluating, like, what have I done? What have I done wrong? What have we done? What have we done wrong? Right. And your brain can only take so much of that, that you need to just take a little time for yourself and think about other things. And climbing was really that retreat for me just to step away from making really hard decisions and get some exercise. Um, so that was kind of the, the last 10 years of my climbing was kicked off by that transition in my life. <laughs> okay. You know, for so better this or is for worse. 2010 kind of, this is where exactly. I got serious. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so just to move that story along, cause we don't need to dwell on that. Cause everybody, again, sure. my story sure. is not unique. After that relationship was done, I realized that climbing filled more than just that type of void. It was actually super enjoyable. And I made some really wonderful friends And it was a sport that could stick with me for many, many years. And so that's when I got serious. I uh, hired a coach. uh, At that time, Justin Zhang was coaching Mm -hmm. privately. And so 
we made a connection and that kind of kicked off more of a serious training, you know, timeline where I was like, yeah, this climbing's going to be great. It fills this void of wanting to be active and engage body and mind together. And I think my relationship with climbing changed again to as a more uh, positive outlet for energy versus kind of a saving grace from emotional turmoil, if that no, makes sense. No, absolutely. I, and I feel the same way. I, I didn't realize this till much later in my life that I, I really need something to kind of be focused on mentally and physically kind of every day. Well, every day without doubt. And, um, you know, I think it's the same kind of people. I think us driven types, whether it's through sport or maybe even piano, who knows that if it went the other way, it could have been like booze or drugs or some, uh, so as as selfish and crazy as climbers can get sometimes it's like, uh, it could be worse, you know, (laughs) There's, there's yeah. worse, there's worse habits to have worse passions. And I think the word addiction will come up occasionally. Yeah. And yeah. just like you said, I would rather choose climbing as an addiction versus other forms of addiction. Um, Absolutely. It keeps you in shape. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, this is a good segue then. So, you know, you, you got focused on climbing about 10 years ago and you eventually got to the point where you were kind of picking up some sponsorships. And I kind of wanted to talk a bit about that. I haven't done that yet really in any big way. I just, I'm always curious on the back door, kind of behind the curtain of how someone becomes a sponsored athlete, even if it's just a few pairs of shoes or whatever, maybe if you're willing or what you're able to talk about for folks who are kind of at that point, we're like, Hey, you know, I'd like to treat this a little bit more seriously, maybe get some gear, maybe even make a small paycheck. First of all, let's mention who you work with just to give credit to those companies who, you know, are doing a a whole lot to support you and other athletes. And then kind of talk about what you're able to on the back end of how do you get to that point? Sure. I work with Um, the biggest one is mystery ranch. And if you're not familiar with mystery ranch, maybe you're familiar with the name Dana designs. Mm -hmm. Many years ago, Dana Gleason started a backpack company and they primarily were focused on just traditional backpacking. Um, but Dana sold Dana's Dana sold Dana designs many years ago and waited for the non-compete to expire. Mm -hmm. And, then launched this new company called Mystery Ranch. And uh, that was also about 20 years ago that Mystery Ranch was launched. And they primarily focus on a lot of uh, government-type contracts. Like they do a ton of work with wildland firefighting. However, Dana's passion was always backpacking and outdoor sports. And so they have never faltered from that midline of doing stuff with outdoor athletes. And they have recently, within the past five years or so, launched a climbing line. And so it's been great to work with them, especially since they're a Bozeman-based company and they still do a ton of production here in their Bozeman facility. And Dana is still at the helm and I see him occasionally. He rides his motorcycle around town and Hmm. And they employ a lot of my friends as kind of a a side note. And so they're a great, great thing to have here in Bozeman. And I enjoy working with them. 
And so I'm proud to support them. And, uh, you know, even if climbing isn't their biggest category, that's okay. Cause they do a lot of good for a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one that I'm super proud of has gnarly nutrition and they're out of kind of the Salt Lake area. Yep. And they were the first folks that I reached out to since we're talking about kind of how you get into this or how one can get into this. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to them and specifically because they were a product that worked really well for me. And at the time, I think this was in like 2016 or something, I said, hey, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is kind of the road I've chosen and what I'm looking to do. Would you be willing to collaborate in any way, shape, or form? And Eli, the guy who is in charge of Gnarly Nutrition, reached back out and was like, yeah, let's do this. And so and did at you the like time, send an email? I mean, like, what do you, like mechanically, what are you doing? Are you hundred percent. Yeah. It was a hundred percent cold call. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, because I have no shame. Like I'll reach out to folks and, you know, no, I've nor, only nor should you, I just, I don't like, is this like a trade show like yeah. conversation or you just like call people or what? Yeah. Okay. And Great. I kind of treated it like a job interview. Yeah. Yeah. Because ultimately it kind of is. It is. And I had a really nice cover letter written with, uh, you know, you can include like a spreadsheet of things you've done and great, um, great. kind of where you're going. And at that, that time I was doing a little bit of competition climbing, but was launching into more competition climbing with the USA Climbing National Series. I've, I've done some lead cups and I did a bouldering uh, USA Climbing Nationals bouldering competition back when it was hosted in Madison. Um, and so all of those things, you know, more or less end up on your resume and show that you're serious about the sport and serious about the product. And I think having a clear vision of why you want to collaborate is key. Mm-hmm. And um, in this instance with Gnarly Nutrition, I knew the product worked for me. I've been using it for a long time. And was this I was just on a board. single product? Sorry to interrupt. I just, what oh, were you yeah. using? Yeah. Gnarly Nutrition. At that time I was using their protein. Okay. Yep. And since then their product line has branched out quite a bit and, oh, yeah. and you can go check it out on the interwebs. And, um, Eli you, and I had a conversation and that was kind of the first step in garnering some sponsorships. And I've been with them ever since. And I'm super grateful because they have grown um, with a very mindful purpose, and I appreciate that very much in a company where so, they they haven't grown super fast, and, but they've just taken steps to get larger as a company very carefully. And so, do they have any fine print of like, "Welcome to the team"? You must make one Instagram post per week or I mean, does that, are those sort of stipulations even there? I mean, I'm totally asking out of ignorance. I just don't even know what's expected. They absolutely are there. So yeah. okay. the companies that I work with all have contracts Okay, as they should. Yes, absolutely. Um, it keeps everybody accountable and it keeps everybody on the same page and it's very easy to know what's expected of you and vice versa, know what's expected of that company. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just, it takes a lot of ambiguity out of the whole relationship. 
Yeah. So, well, Instagram is less and less highlighted. Um, it's still a major player in a lot of contracts. I think because of the strange algorithms that Instagram, you know, have gone has gone through recently within the past few years, you know, it's harder to to garner like 20, 50, 100,000 followers. Mm. And people are also realizing that um, you know, Instagram is kind of just everybody's highlight reel. And so it doesn't necessarily <laughs> show uh, real life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually that's a, another good lead in. I feel like you've been kind of honest about that because a lot of, um, I guess, sponsored climbers or certainly other influencers outside of climbing can certainly be guilty of putting together the perfect highlight reel. And maybe we don't even have to be sponsored. I think everyone does it to some degree. Right. But what are your thoughts on that on a personal basis? Do you ever kind of clash with this expectation? I got to do this because I'm with these companies, but I feel differently on a personal level about these platforms. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it most, most affects me when I see friends or coworkers or people I care about getting caught up in comparing themselves to everybody else's highlight reel. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, the companies I work with and uh, Vitora, it, the climbing shoe company, is another company I work with. Just a quick shout out to them. Sure. Um, none of them really stress posting with regularity, okay. which is which is great. Um, they do want posts, but they don't put a ton of parameters around those posts. So I'm fairly free to do and say, you know, within reason, whatever I want. Sure, there are um, some exceptions. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to ever be negative Nancy. And, right. Uh, you know, but I think most recently I posted some super nice pictures of landscapes. And that really, believe it or not, kind of bucks the trend of many athletes' Instagram feeds. It does. Because a lot of athletes post a lot of selfies, a lot of close-ups, a lot of, um, you know, here's, here's my highlight reel. This is the sickest, gnarliest climb I've just done. And you don't see nearly as much traffic on landscape photos mm-hmm. and like pretty pictures versus, uh, you know, climbing with your sports bra on and flexing <laughs> your bicep. Well, you should try posting about a 401k. See how much <laughs> right? traffic that gets you. I don't know anybody who would know about that. <laughs> I don't have any good sports bra photos either, so it's tough. <laughs> well, this is something for you to try. Maybe in the future you could get more likes. <laughs> so I think, you know, to answer your question a little bit more directly, our ego gets in the way. 100%. Um, yeah. Especially if you're in your 20s. And not to not to stereotype, but in your twenties, you're really developing like who you are as a human. You're, maybe you're just coming out of college and figuring out what you want to do with your life, or maybe you're, you know, just breaking into the climbing scene as like a newer, hot, you know, high achieving climber, and you think every post needs to be better than the last one. Mm-hmm. And it's a really uh, toxic mentality to have. 
um, because it's not sustainable and it's not real life. Yeah. And so you're not generalizing. I mean, (laughs) yeah, 20 year olds. I mean, we've all been there. We all thought we had the world figured out in our twenties and then, you know, life goes on. Life is long. It's super long and you have plenty of time to make a bigger and better highlight reel, but I think it's important to also acknowledge challenges and hardships. And those are the building blocks of character. And the more the general public accepts and realizes that people are out there busting their ass, you know, working hard in the gym, it's not all unicorns and rainbows. Mm-mm. Yeah. Well, let's maybe get back to a little bit of your story and how this call all kind of intertwines. Speaking of life being long, you kind of went down this educational path for education, correct? But that's right. not what you do today. So kind of what was the evolution of saying, hey, you know, I, I kind of put all my eggs in this basket, but this is not what I thought. I'm going to do something different. How did that evolve for you? Sure. Well, after I got my undergrad, my undergrad was in biology and uh, mm-hmm. conservation biology to be specific. And I was looking for a master's program because I love school. Like if I could be paid to go and sit in class, oh my God. that would be amazing. Yes. Right. You know, like yes. it wouldn't even matter. I would just go and sit and listen to the, to brilliant people talk. Um, I thought the next logical step for myself would be a master's degree. And I was looking at more of the hard sciences in the beginning and quickly realized that I was not prepared or mentally ready to take on some of the hard science master's programs. Like, for example, I remember applying to a couple of them and they wanted me to apply as an undergraduate with like a super solid project in mind and where I would get funding for said project. Yep. And as a 21 year old, 22 year old, I, I didn't know how to do that or where to start. <laughs> like now. Yeah. I what would were you be looking super at by so- the way, which, which sciences? Yeah. Um, the one that sticks out the most was, um, working on like a wolf biology study. Okay. And so, at that point in time, and probably still now, that area of biology and of conservation is super hot topic. Mm-hmm. And I was not ready to be competitive in that field at all, not even a little bit. And now, obviously, after you know many years of life, I'd, I would be able to put together a solid project. But as a 22-year-old, I didn't know how to even begin in that process. I remember those Um, days. Yeah. So believe it or not, I went shopping around for like the easiest master's program I could come across. (laughs) (laughs) You're not the only one. Right. It seems logical. Like what's the path of least resistance here? And um, I came across some programs that were in education. I was like, well, I like education. I'm pretty good at that. And I had dabbled a little bit as a teenager helping out at uh, a nature center in Wisconsin. And I, that was very pivotal growing up. Like I love being outside, shocking no one. I love being outside. Mm-hmm. And I was like, great, this would be a perfect fit. I would love to teach kids outside. I would love to just be outside and started down the path of getting this, uh, master's degree in science education. And, um, 
it was it was fairly straightforward and fairly easy. I did get to take a bunch of hard science classes, which really scratched that itch that I was looking for initially. You know, I, there's some great great professors in like wildlife ecology at Montana State, and I got to take some of their classes. But then I also ended up with this science education degree, mm-hmm. and turns out. Again, surprising no one, education really doesn't pay all that much. Um, Mm -hmm. All the teachers out there know that. Um, They're probably the most underpaid category maybe in the country just based on what teachers have to deal with these days. Absolutely. I second that. Yeah. And at the time, I knew I didn't want to be in a classroom and I wanted to be more uh, experiential outdoor education, work with nonprofits. Um, which pay even less. And I spent many years like putting together, stringing together seven, six or seven different jobs throughout the year. So I would contract teach and I would do some backpacking guiding, you know, for a season. Mm -hmm. And then I would teach kids on cross-country skis for the winter. And I was here and there and everywhere. And it's a really hard uh, pattern to maintain for many years of of having seven different jobs throughout the year. So um, at one point, I was offered a job to homeschool someone else's kids. Hmm. And it offered me more money than I would ever make teaching, period. Teaching in a public school, teaching in a private school. This family was like, hey, do you want to homeschool our kids? We'll pay you this much. And, um, I couldn't pass it up. And you weren't having to cobble a bunch of jobs together every year now, right? This was like your thing. It was a stable schedule. I, the kids were young. So I was like, Hey, how bad could this be? I'm teaching a first grader. Like I I can do simple (laughs) addition and I can teach all the subjects. You know, I think it would have been a different story if these were sophomores in high school, Mm -hmm. but super young kids. And it was a blast because I could create the, my own, uh, program for them. And I used a lot of stuff off the internet, um, based on different homeschool models. And it was a really fun two years. And then this family picked up and they said, you know, Montana's just not for us. We're out of here. And so they left and my job left. Um, and I was out of a job like fairly quickly within like six weeks. Wow. And Um, at that time, a major outdoor retailer was moving to town and I just needed a job really fast and applied with them. And there were like 500 other applicants. And I was like, huh, what are the chances? And sure enough, just got a job with this outdoor retailer and ended up working for them for almost 10 years. Wow. Wow. (laughs) So that's what that transition was like. It was kind of, uh, forced. Yeah. And you just stuck with it. I just stuck with it. That's part of like the Midwestern stubbornness. (laughs) For sure. And there were many parts of it that were really fun. And it was a great introduction into the outdoor industry. And I learned a lot. Um, There are also many parts of it that were not fun. You know, this, this company is known for like making people drink the Kool-Aid and they're like fairly... Uh, rigid in their belief system and their structure. And, um, Hmm. but I'm thankful to them because they provided decent health insurance and 
uh, gave me a really good glimpse into the industry, which has kind of set me on the path that I'm in now. Yeah. And now you work for a, a small independent retail shop, correct? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So believe it or not, Bozeman has been lacking a small independent retailer for outdoor products for many years. And we're talking about like technical things. So typical rock climbing items, uh, you know, cams, mm-hmm. quick draws, really solid ropes. Um, and also our specialty really is in backcountry ski equipment. Mm. Um, so that really carries us and sets the tone for the entire year. Cause we do great business during the winter. Um, kind of, only specializing in backcountry ski and splitboarding stuff. And so my position there is the buyer. So I get to figure out and extrapolate what is going to be popular in the next coming seasons, you know, fall and spring. I just finished up placing all of the orders for spring of 22. Hmm. So you have to think a little bit ahead. And it's great. It's great working for a small independent retailer. Everybody should support their small independent gear shops. Um, We're able to pivot really quickly with the market and also support a ton of local events and projects, which I love because supporting community, again, back to that community piece, is really important in my mind. Yep. I I support that as well. I support local shops right here in St. George. We got the Desert Rat. I try and preferentially go there over the big retailers myself. And so, yeah, two votes on that. Yeah. So it's been, it's been a good transition, I think. And this is a common job for a lot of climbers. It's in the retail world. Is there any kind of, after spending how many years you've been in this business now, at least a decade, any background or information you throw out there for folks considering going this route? Cause we're kind of in the season of people changing careers for a lot of reasons during this last couple of years, pandemic related. Yeah, I definitely have like two, maybe two or three tips. The first one is if you're looking to get into one of these positions, um, be super clear about what you want to negotiate because sometimes a higher hourly salary is not worth it if you're able to instead negotiate flexibility. Mm -hmm. You know, as climbers, we love taking trips and we love you know, being out somewhere for an extended period of time. If you're, if you come to your potential employer and you're haggling over the hourly wage, just say, look, I'll take a lower hourly wage. If you're able to, you know, give me X amount of time off or pay me X amount of weeks vacation. Um, So just be really mindful of the specifics of what is important to you. You know, because I love having long weekends where I can jet down to the fins or jet down to ten sleep, climb two or three days, and then be ready for work the next day. Mm-hmm. And I imagine for small shops, they probably have more leeway on giving time off than giving big raises. Totally. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then the other big thing is when you're approaching shops, if you've gotten the job already or you haven't, I think the biggest thing that I've found is, you know, when you're on the sales floor or you're dealing with customers, just be ready to listen and be ready Mm -hmm. to meet people where they're at. Because one of the biggest barriers I've found when people come into specialty retailers is 
a lot of folks think they aren't good enough to even be in the shop. <laughs> and it's ridiculous because everybody's welcome, right? Number one. And number two, a lot of these shops, we will get you set up with like whatever level of ability you feel you are at and you feel you need. So if you just need like a basic rope to go rock climbing, listen to the customer, tell you about their experience. Don't offer them the best, fanciest thing unless that is specifically what they tell you. If they just want a rope that can get them by, like get them a super solid rope that's not the most expensive one. So I think just like tuning in those your listening ability as uh, an employee is kind of one of the big biggest assets that you can bring to a company. Now, another question, do these companies, whether small, I'm sure you, you alluded to the fact that the large retailers probably do, but are benefits kind of common with these companies or maybe not? Um, I don't think they're super common, but mm, if you can okay. score a job with one of them, I know, I think I saw an advertisement from Bentgate Mountaineering in mm -hmm. Golden, Colorado, yep. that they were saying something about insurance or Bennies. If you can score a, a position, I would go out of your way to uh, maintain good relations and keep that job. Yeah, because, agreed. Yeah, uh, that would be huge. Now, do you think that's something coming out of this kind of late hiring crisis, if we're going to use those kind of old words? Um, I think it started prior to that. Okay. Yeah, I think folks that own some of these independent gear shops are fairly aware of the challenges of getting quality employees, and that's one of the biggest challenges. Again, it's not the hourly wage that's, you know, nobody's going to give you $35 an hour to work at a gear shop. Mm -hmm. But if they give you less than that, plus insurance and some flexible time off, you're going to get the best employees that are familiar with the gear and psyched about helping people kind of fulfill uh, those gear needs. Great. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for that. Yeah. Well, along those same veins, we've talked a little bit about, I mean, th this has been big and not just climbing, but this is big, you know, universally, certainly in America with the pandemic and with the change to remote work, we already kind of alluded to this with folks moving to Bozeman and other small Western towns. How have you seen the career kind of world change? Any any kind of observations from the climbing world or otherwise, especially in a town like Bozeman where people are maybe reinventing themselves and coming here from other places? Any trends you've seen? I think in the climbing world, the trends I've been seeing, and this comes from just chatting with people, chatting with people in 10 sleep that travel from all over the West to climb there. I think the biggest careers I've seen surfacing that work for climbers have been tech careers. So mm -hmm. stuff where you can, you know, set up remotely work from wherever you are, as long as you have an internet connection. So whether it's programming or website design, those careers are huge. Sure. I think in hindsight, you know, maybe I would have enjoyed that career path, even though it probably would have been really challenging for me. That's a pretty solid way to go if you want to be a full-time climber or you think you want to take these extended breaks and vacations and take your work with you. And the second field I've seen grow in popularity is travel nursing. Mm, yeah. So 
you can score a contract, stay in an area for X amount of time and really get to know an area and then move on to a different area. Um, beside the fact that I think the pay is pretty exceptional, you know, as far as all careers go to support a climbing lifestyle. So you don't necessarily need to go from place to place, back to back to back. You can take two weeks between hitches. You know, you work in one place, finish your uh, stint there, take a week or two to go climbing, and then you're moving on to the next travel nurse location. So if you're looking to get into a certain career field or change careers, those would be the places I would look first if I were looking to change careers. Um, I think they're super lucrative to support a climbing lifestyle. Yeah, and I guess <clears throat> I guess the only thing I'd add there, just anecdotally, I've run into a few folks who've gone the nursing route. I would caution that you'd probably want to be into nursing to some degree. It's not an easy career. It's very demanding, especially in these times, given all the health scares and things going on. So yes, it does afford some lifestyle flexibility, but I wouldn't take lifestyle flexibility in exchange of a job you hate that's also very demanding. Um, so just some food for thought there from just some friends' feedback. Absolutely. But, yeah. yeah, agreed. Well, we've also seen a lot of movement in the climbing world, right? We've seen a lot of folks become moving into uh, maybe the consulting space with coaches or, I mean, I've seen a lot of that personally. Any thoughts there? You mean the proliferation of climbing coaches? Sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I have many thoughts. I'm not <laughs> okay. sure if... <laughs> I'm not sure if this podcast is long enough. Um, <laughs> it is a long form podcast. Right. <laughs> so, you know, the pros to the whole thing of, of this new era of climbing coaches in the online space. It's great that people are reinventing themselves, that people are looking to help others. You know, mm -hmm. ultimately you have to assume that people are are wanting the best for others. And to me, if people want to help other folks get better at climbing, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, I think, though, the market is fairly saturated. And if you're looking for a climbing coach, definitely practice some discretion in where you're looking and how you're looking and how you're evaluating people that could potentially coach you. Um, well, you've worked with some coaches over the years. Do you have any suggestions? I mean, I've also worked with a coach once, but maybe you've got some more experience. What would you look for to evaluate a coach? Yeah, the biggest thing I would look for, I'll just speak from my experience because that's, that's my reality. And if people want to find some nuggets from that, that's fantastic. Sure. But from my experience, um, I have worked in the past with Justin Zhang, mm -hmm. who, if you don't know who that is, um, former team he, of two and team of two. Yep. yep. And he did this pretty cool route with Tommy Caldwell called magic mushroom Yes. in Yosemite. Um, just, you know, minor, minor little asterisk there, like <laughs> pretty solid guy. Yeah. And, um, I think he's working for, LCAP, like the climbing conglomerate, uh, climbing gym conglomerate now. And I currently work with Chris Hampton of Power Company Climbing. Yep. And my background is 
find the person who knows best what they're doing. Like, what when, do you mean? What are you looking for? How do you know yeah, they know best? Yeah, when you're when you're looking at a coach, I would consider multiple factors. Number one, you know, how long have they been coaching? How long have they been climbing? And also kind of their experience in various different areas of the country, in various different genres of climbing, you know, trad, bouldering, sport. Um, so essentially kind of their resume or their CV. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also beneficial when you're looking at coaches to acknowledge their education. And remember, that's not a be all end all. You know, education doesn't necessarily mean they're able to take advice and experience and successfully transfer that to their clients. Right. You know, that some of the smartest people out there are really poor teachers. Absolutely. Um, so we've got kind of climate experience, we've got education, and I would even take into account, um, to me, it's like gut instinct or like you're let's see if you can feel out your bullshit meter if you will (laughs) so (laughs) if you're looking at a coach and it feels like a multi-level marketing scam (laughs) like follow your heart with that and if it doesn't feel right maybe move on or look at somebody else um i think there are a lot of coaches these days who have recently come onto the scene, I guess, if you will. And they have picked up various certifications online. Mm-hmm. And I think that is different than actually going to school and say, if you're like specializing in nutrition with climbing, I think it is important to be going to school for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and granted, there's a lot of different programs out there, you know, if we're using nutrition as an example, and as a potential client, um, it is up to you to research that and be like, look, is this person just looking, is this potential coach just looking for the quickest and easiest way to put a bunch of letters behind their name that say they're quote unquote certified? Mm -hmm. So I would use discretion as a consumer, you know, as a potential client and really dig into you know, what your potential coach is claiming to be and what qualifications they have. So if, you, if you're looking at a coach for like mindset coaching or mental coaching, have they even taken a psychology class at all in their entire life? Mm. Do they have a psychology degree? Have they um, taken like post-grad sports psychology? Mm-hmm. You know, I did a little bit of mental coaching um, and I did it with somebody who has a PhD, because for me, if I'm going to invest my hard earned money into somebody who's going to coach me, I'm going to get the best product I can for the money I can give them. So I'm going to search out kind of the most qualified in my eyes based on kind of these parameters that we're talking about, whether it's experience, uh, certifications, plus degrees, um, and look at their client list. Like if if they've worked with a lot of climbers in the past or if they've worked with Olympic athletes, like that speaks volumes. So 
I think we might've worked with the same person. <laughs> I, I, I also had a, a mental health coach at one point who had a PhD. Yes. And there's not yeah. that many of them in the sport. So there's not, but they're pretty easy to find. If you yeah. just take a hot second, slow down and, and also it really helps to write down what you want to get out of the whole process. Um, so speaking to what you've brought up here with the proliferation of coaches, you know, just because somebody is also a pro climber doesn't mean they know what they're doing. Um, oh yeah. There's, I, I there's one that. specifically that is hitting the scene pretty hard right now that I've had personal accounts, uh, from two, two different folks that their program has like seriously injured the person mm. who has, yeah has participated in it. And granted, yes, there's a lot of variables that go into hurting yourself when you're climbing. But if you are programmed way too much volume or kind of the incorrect load for what you're ready for, that's a very quick way to that leads to injury. So um, just because somebody has a huge social media following and maybe they've won many, many national titles, um, doesn't mean they're going to know how to write you a program. Right. No, that's very true. I mean, you can see that even in the sciences, like you said, I mean, you can be an expert in a subject doesn't mean you're great at teaching it per se. Um, yeah. And I guess maybe to get a little bit more, let's see, how do I want to phrase this? Um, yeah. I mean, climbing is not a regulated sport. I mean, we're self-regulated. There's no, there's no governing body to say you are now a certified climbing coach. And like you said, you can get certain maybe strength certifications. I, I to my knowledge, there are no climbing specific certifications outside of guiding, right? Like the SBI, but right. I don't think there are any climbing coach certification that says you are a certified. I think there may be a few informal movement kind of seminars and things like that, but yeah, I, I'm with you. Do your homework. And I think this extends beyond the climbing world. I mean, just the life coach industry, I know, has ballooned in the last year. Um, but that doesn't mean everyone is suitable to give life advice. So I certainly wouldn't feel that way. But anyway, well, we'll move on from that subject. Unless you have anything else you want to add there? Um, no, I just think people need to be selective with where they spend their dollars. And like you said, uh, you know, Climb Strong offers a climbing coaches seminar. See who is attending that seminar. Mm. Um, and that would be a good starting point. Um, Power Company Climbing, those are two like pretty big folks in the West that would be good starting points. If you don't end up with one of those coaches, that's totally cool. But at least maybe start there and uh, see where that could take you when you're doing your research to find a coach. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Those are two solid organizations. I've dealt with both of them in various ways and yes, very solid organizations, both of those climb strong power company. And there are undoubtedly others. And obviously we all start from somewhere when we enter a new career. And so I'm sure there's very, uh, I'm sure there's a number of promising early coaches that are just getting, you know, getting, uh, some momentum going and could be doing very great work on down the road, but yeah. And certainly there's a lot more climbers too. So I actually would be curious to explore, get one of these folks on this show and see like, what is the demand? Maybe the demand is far exceeding what we even believe. I mean, a lot of people are climbing and you know how when you get that early zest, all you want to do is just like train immediately, even if you've been climbing for two months. So 
I think yeah. the demand is there from what I've heard. Yeah. Uh, the organizations that we have just mentioned, they will have wait lists of over 100 people. Wow. So, yeah, I think demand is fairly high. Yeah, that's my hunch as well. Yeah. Well, let's talk about another topic we mentioned in your previous written interview, just changing gears almost completely here. I mean, it's very, this is a, this is a common thing I'm asked about. Folks are trying to save for vans, slide in campers. And you actually have some interesting experience you brought up when we met for coffee the first day. You're like, Hey, you'll love this. You know, you had a van and had a different kind of experience. Do you want to walk us through that experience one more time? Oh yeah. I mean, I've been in 10 sleep a bunch this summer, so I know what van life is right now. Uh And Vans are huge. Everybody's got a van. And it, it kind of blows me away because my experience was not amazing. Hmm. And I actually, because I had such a rough experience with a van, got rid of it. Um, and I am much happier now with my setup. And that said, I do think vans can work for some folks. I think it's a little bit more nuanced than social media or uh, climbing media tends to make us believe. And, you know, when I was thinking about this topic, because I knew we were probably going to talk about it, mm-hmm. there's, there's certainly pros and cons to each, to every kind of setup you can find. So um, my experience with the van was that I purchased a already built out van, a ProMaster, so non four wheel drive, FYI, because that comes into play. And it was built. It was built by a company that was just getting their feet wet in building vans. So uh, you can interpret that as maybe not very good at it yet. Mm-hmm. And had some super negative experiences with the build. So not the van itself. Dodge, you know, fully delivered on a functioning driving van. <laughs> They're into the deal. Yeah. Yep. They delivered on there and the deal the, the folks that built my van though, you know, the scariest thing was one of the solar panels almost flew off the top of my van on the interstate. Yikes. And that was really frightening because, you know, in Montana, the speed limit is like 80 miles an hour. So you're just cruising down the interstate at 80 and I hear this loud noise on the roof of my van and, I'm like, what could that be? So I pulled over and three out of the four connection points from the solar panel to the roof of my van had totally popped, like ripped out of the wow. top of my van. And so picture me. And if for everybody who don't, doesn't know me, I'm like five foot four, 115 pounds. So not very big human. <laughs> so I'm crawling on the top of my van, super high winds. And this is on the side of the interstate. Super high winds. I got this solar panel in my hands. A huge wind gust comes up and the solar panel goes from horizontal to vertical. (laughs) And now I'm holding a giant sail and I'm like, I am not going to die today falling off of my van with the solar panel. So I (laughs) transfer my body weight, like slam my solar panel back down on the van roof. And thankfully a guy pulled over and he was super strong, kind of roughneck. He's probably on the way to the oil field type of guy. <laughs> and he's like, hey, do you need help? And I, I was like, yeah, I need a lot of help. So um, <laughs> I popped 
the fourth corner that was still hanging on by a thread out of the roof of my van and passed him the solar pit. Like I'm on, still on top of my van, passed him the solar panel from on top of my van. He, he grabbed it from on the ground and, um, I managed to not fall off the roof of my van and shoved the solar panel inside the van. And I turned around and limped home. I was actually on the way to a climbing competition at the time. And I had to cancel and just go home. Um, so that was, that left a very poor taste in my mouth about the build. And in the months after the solar panel incident, as we shall call it, <laughs> a couple other things went wrong with the build. And I was pretty dissatisfied with the whole experience and my ability to troubleshoot and fix what was wrong. So um, <clears throat> on top of that, having a vehicle, my primary and only vehicle that I drove around Bozeman right. that was not four-wheel drive was really, really difficult in the winter. I would get stuck on the road in front of my house <laughs> in the snow, and it was ridiculous and embarrassing, but I mean, I don't really care if my neighbors see me stuck on the road in front of the house. But it was super frustrating because I um, I had been a truck owner previously to the van and a, a four-wheel drive owner for as long as I can remember. And so moving to this non-four-wheel drive land was not working for me. In Montana winters. In Montana winter. And you probably would think, God, how bad could it be? Well, um the city of Bozeman doesn't necessarily plow all of the city roads all the time. And so sometimes, you know, six, eight inches of snow would fall and we, my road wouldn't get plowed for, I don't know, a week, 10 days. And so everybody's just driving over fresh snow. You know, we're getting these huge ruts, yep. um, temperature fluctuations causing some iciness. So four-wheel drive is kind of a necessity, especially when you put on top of the fact that I do do some ice climbing and do a fair bit of skiing. And so getting to these locations to either ice climb or ski was pretty tricky um, if I wanted to drive. It was like out of the question to drive this van some of these places. That's been my hangup. It's like this daily driver concept is tough if it's your only car. And if it's not your only car, then it's just expensive. Correct. Yeah. So long story short, I ended up finding a guy who wanted to trade his Toyota Tundra uh, plus some cash for my van. Mm -hmm. And it was probably one of the best things that could have happened to me. And I made this deal happen and it ended up with a Tundra. And um, after that, I was able to find a slide-in camper. Mm -hmm. the exact one I was looking for came up for sale in Missoula and I called the guy and was like, I'm, I'm wiring you a deposit. I'm coming to get this thing tomorrow. Pretty much is how it went down. And so my current setup is a 09 Tundra with a slide in camper. And it is one of the best decisions I've made in the past 10 years. <laughs> they are slick, man. They are slick. Yeah. We thought so, about it. We had a Tacoma and a short bed at that. So it would have been very small. And we were going to be living on the road for at least a year is with our thoughts at the time. And I'm like, this is a little tight for that kind of style of living. 
Right. But for long weekends, maybe a couple of weeks, maybe even a month, I think they're pretty cool. Exactly. Yep. And if you're traveling solo or with another person, mm-hmm. another person and a dog, it's super doable. Um, and what I like about it is that I can keep the slide in camper on full time and it provides a, a great bit of weight in the back. So in the winter, the truck is super solid. Four wheel drive or not, with all that weight in the back, it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then in the summer, I'll try to bike to work when I can just to not drive the truck as much, but, um, is it a permanent mount on there or do you just keep it on? I choose to keep it on. So it's not permanent, but I just leave it on. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've I've heard some people are like, "Ah, I take it on and off. That's kind of a pain because I don't want to have it on in town. So yeah, there's a little bit of a trade off there. Yes, definitely. And so you didn't have any fancy saving. You pretty much just sold the van and then bought all this with cash, basically trade slash cash. So it's. Yeah. And I had a little bit left over because, uh, you know, older trucks, even though 2009 is not that old, they still need a little maintenance. So, Mm. uh, I've used that leftover cash just to bring everything up to perfect working order. And I couldn't be happier. I think, you know, when you're talking about finances, the truck and the camper idea, you can, like, there's such a wide range of truck and camper price options. You can, you know, the world is your oyster. You mm-hmm. can buy a $3,000, let's say a T100 or an, like a first gen Tundra. Yep. And, um, you know, there's some sliding campers out there for a thousand bucks. And with a little bit of elbow grease and maybe, you know, a friend who's got some woodworking skills, you can make that camper sealed and livable like fairly easily. So if you're looking on a budget and you're only dealing with one vehicle, that could potentially be a really good option. Mm -hmm. Do you think you could ever live out of one of these vehicles? Either having had a van or a sliding camper, could you do it full time? You personally? You know, I've thought a lot about that and, um, I'm not sure. I don't know. What's the hesitation? Like the space, the... um, The aspect of routine Mm. in life. Yeah. I like routine. It's nice having a home base. Um, I don't know how well mentally I would do with having to drive around and find a new spot to sleep um, or breaking down camp and driving to work and then driving back to a camp spot and setting back up again. Um, could I do it? No problem. Yeah. Is it, is it preferable? Probably not. That's definitely the downside with the van or the slide in versus what I have, which is you got to find somewhere to leave it, which you can't be stealthy and you can't move a lot, but I have a little A-frame and you can just park it and it's like a little home away from home. But the trade-off is like, I got to find a place that's like legit that I can leave it and be gone all right. day. And I think your setup is probably the best for long-term because if you find a spot on national forest land, a lot of these places have like 14 days limit mm-hmm. and you just let park that thing for 14 days and you can drive to work in your truck and then drive back to your little A-frame at night. And it's kind of having a mobile home. <laughs> you just got to move it after yeah. 14 days. Um, so I think if people are looking to do the long-term thing, your setup 
probably fits in with like societal norms the best. <laughs> yeah. Well, sort of. You're also like <laughs> living out in the woods down some weird dirt road where some tweaker might be. It's true. Posting yeah. up like 200 yards away, which we had on several occasions. But. Oh, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> National Forest is a vast and interesting place. Yeah. You should see the desert BLM land. It gets even weirder. Oh, well, I've been bopping around Wyoming a lot. And yeah. that, I mean, there's oh, yeah. some interesting Wyoming, folks there. Oh, yeah. We had a few, more than a few interesting nights in Wyoming. We'll leave yeah. it at that. Yeah. We'll let you folks get out there and experience it for yourself. Keeping it spicy. You can't live vicariously through us forever. <laughs> <laughs> Well, great. Uh, anything else we haven't covered so far you want to talk about? I'm going through my notes here. Um, let me look here. No, I think we covered most everything. I, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed covering some of these points about social media and, and what climbing means to folks and just accepting that climbing can mean a variety of things to you throughout your life. And I hope a ton of climbers listen. I mean, I imagine it's just climbers listening to these things. It's not the financial gurus. There's some crossover. Yeah. Try to keep both people happy. I've got a little bit of both in my audience pool. There are some people who are not climbers at all, but are interested in the lifestyle. Just kind of like, kind of like watching a reality TV show or something. Like I don't want to live like that, but I can't stop watching. Um, so there's a little bit of a crossover. I guess um, any other projects, anything you're psyched on right now you'd want to talk about? Climbing-wise? Um, I am just psyched on the fact that it's not 90 degrees and some days the smoke seems to be better than others. And I am hoping for a long fall because fall might be the best season ever, especially for rock climbing. Mm-hmm. And you know, we kind of talked a little bit about mental health and I'm just excited to kind of pull out of this, the depths of summer because it's been feeling like a really long summer and get some cooler temperatures and gather some psych and just kind of move along. And even though I, I never want winter to begin early, um, you know, I'm a little bit more encouraged that it's, beginning to get cooler outside. So yeah. I know it's hard for you down in St. George that <sighs> it's probably 110 degrees still. No, but. it's not that hot. I'm happy about yeah. like upper nineties, mid nineties right now. And to put a timestamp on this, you know, this is early September, but yeah, it's odd. I used to associate seasonal depression with like the winter, but it becomes mm-hmm. increasingly clear in the last two years that it may start being a little bit of summer too with, with the wildfires and the smoke. And for me now, the heat being trapped indoors more than I'm used to when I'm home anyway. I do have the, the great privilege to be able to travel quite a lot in the summer. But um, And even for you guys up in Bozeman, which is supposed to be like the great white north or whatever, but it's not that cold, you know. It's not anymore. No. No. And you guys get the brunt of the smoke for sure. I, I've watched those maps all summer and that region definitely getting hit or hitting harder than Utah. Yes. Yep. I mean, Utah has its own set of issues with the inversion and stuff, but. Sure. Um, well, Salt Lake, we don't get that, thankfully. Oh, right. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. Salt Lake for sure in the winter gets those really nasty inversions, poor air quality, really low temperatures, just kind of harsh. Yeah. No, it's dreamy here in the winter. Oh, I can imagine. Yes. 
All right. I'll take I'll take 70 degrees year round if I can follow the weather and follow the good rock climbing. Yeah, it's kind of like infinite fall down here from like October through April into early May. Oh man, it's dreamy. But yeah, well, you, you pay for it in the summer for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you have the insight to be able to appreciate that because yeah. yeah. It it takes living in multiple locations to to really appreciate the nuances of seasonal change. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. We were complaining about how hot it was climbing yesterday. And the guy we were climbing with was from New Hampshire. He's like, this feels amazing to me right now. It's dry and it's only, you know, it's like 95 degrees, but it's not that bad. Up on the mountain, it's only in the 80s. And he's like, oh, we've hardly been able to climb all summer in the East Coast. I'm like, eh, fair. Yeah, you're right. I forgot. It's been a while. Yep. Yep. Well, thanks no, for coming just, on. Oh, sorry. I go really ahead. Go ahead. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat about some of these things. I hope. Folks can take some little nuggets and, Absolutely. you know, improve, improve their scenarios or situations and find a new job, work in, work at a small gear shop. Yes. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Becky. And I appreciate your time and look forward to seeing you in person again soon. Yeah. Thanks so much. <laughs>